You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Thank you for joining us today on Leaders and Legends. We're here with Nate Feltman, businessman extraordinaire, one of the most well-liked people you'll ever meet. He's an incredible business career, an incredible personal history, which we're going to get into. He's done some absolutely amazing things, and quite frankly, he's done them all around the world. And we're very grateful to have you today, Nate. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Robert. Nate, tell the Leaders and Legends podcast audience a little bit about where you're from, where you were educated, and how you got where you are today. Sure. Mostly from Indiana, but I was born in Virginia, Newport News, Virginia. My dad was in the Army, and so I was born on an Army base in Newport News. And uh, then uh, he moved and started his dental practice in South Bend, Indiana, which is where I spent most of my growing up years, Mishawaka, South Bend. Uh, a little bit of time in upstate New York during my uh, middle school years, and then back to northern Indiana, and then uh, college down in Bloomington, a good old IU, and <laughs> law school here in Indianapolis. And then, which is a little unusual for an Indiana guy, I spent a year studying Russian law at a Russian law school to do a what's called an LLM, a master's degree in, in Russian law. So I had a phenomenal experience then and, and thereafter in uh, the former Soviet Union. Was your father career military? No. He just went in after dental school. He was trying to decide whether he was going to specialize and decided to become an endodontist after being in the Army for a couple of years and specialized in endodontics. And uh, he just served for a few years in the, in the Army. Endodontist. That's the person who gives me my root, the root canal. The root canals. Everybody's favorite, the root canal. <laughs> <laughs> so if, when your dad says, you know, Nate, it's not a root canal, he knew what he was talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Were you in South Bend for some good Notre Dame football years? Did you go to many games? Absolutely. As a kid, I ended up going to quite a few games. I went to the first night game. I remember being there for the first night game. I can't tell you exactly what year it was. but Is that where they beat Michigan? It might have been. It was the first night game. I remember... The 1988 was my senior year in high school. It was the year they won the national championship. I think it was the last year they won the national championship. It was 1988. So I got to see a, a national championship. So I, you know, I, I always say I am a Notre Dame fan until they play IU, at which, at which point I become an Indiana fan. But uh, <laughs> rarely have they played. But I was at the only, or at least the most recent game where Notre Dame played IU in football. And that was, again, some years ago. It was probably 15, 20 years ago. But that was another good one to be yeah, at. Because Mallory was the coach. Right. Right, and of course Notre Dame beat them, but it was a good game. Like all IU games, it was a good game until the end. <laughs> <laughs> the Purdue fans have a name for people like you and me who root for Notre Dame football and root for IU basketball. Do you know what that name is? What is it? They call us reversible jackets, <laughs> which I can get from their perspective. Well, when you grow up in South Bend, it's, it's hard not to root for the hometown team. All right. When you're Catholic and have IU degrees, it's hard not to root for both teams. <laughs> I think that first night game was the uh, Notre Dame-Michigan game where Reggie Ho kicked all the field goals. That sounds familiar. And that was the game they won on the way to a national championship. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. 
Did you ever entertain? Did you want to go to Notre Dame? So it's funny. I applied to one school and one school only, and that was IU Bloomington. Both my parents went to IU, and I was brainwashed at a very, very young age <laughs> watching IU basketball, watching Bobby Knight, which you're, we're sitting in my office. You can see I have a little statue of Bobby Knight up there that was given to me some years ago. And uh, so, no, I, there was never a decision to be made. I applied to one school, one school only. I knew I was going to IU. And what if you hadn't gotten in? Well, then we would have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be doing a podcast with right. someone else. That's right. What was your undergraduate major at IU? So I did two degrees. I was really fascinated with business. So I, I did a business degree through the Kelly School, but then I doubled up and I did a, a degree uh, through the School of Arts and Sciences, a political science degree. And that was when I had to make a choice about a language. In order to get that degree, I had to have a language. I studied French, but I was not very interested at the time in France. And I, therefore, I didn't study it that seriously. But at that time in the world, uh, this was 1988 when I enrolled down at IU. This was a time of great change and great possibilities in the world with Reagan and Gorbachev getting together and talking about ending the Cold War. And uh, when I enrolled as a freshman down at IU, I took an arms control class, which really piqued my interest and interest in in Russia. I was studying things like mutual assured destruction and all these other acronyms that we can remember and became fascinated about the geopolitics of the time and decided to take Russian language as part of my political science degree. And, um, and then went on to study, continue to study and study in the Soviet Union and then Russia. But but uh, I did two degrees, uh, two separate degrees, a, a business school degree and a, a school of arts and sciences, political science degree. And as we get deeper and deeper into this podcast, you'll understand why Nate is so well thought of and, and so successful. You seem to relish learning. That's a good point. Uh, and it, that's nice of you to say, but um, for me, that is what I feel like life is a lot about. And one of one of the things I think life about is continuous learning. And I have always said that when I start to get a little bit bored, I'm ready for a change. And a lot of times in my life, they've been big changes, big career changes, because I do relish learning. I feel like that is what um, propels me, keeps me interested, keeps me learning, keeps me meeting new people, doing new things. Uh, I love to always be learning. And if I get to any one point in life where I'm not, usually I look for an opportunity for some significant change. What about the experience in Bloomington has stuck with you? We've had several people on the podcast who've graduated from IU. The reviews are universally favorable. Everybody said it was a blast. They'd go back there tomorrow. Yeah. You went there right after they won the national championship in 87, but they had some good yeah. basketball teams. They went you to got the final the, four of my senior year in 92. You got into the Cheney years. Yeah. And so just talk a little bit about why IU, why is it stuck with you so much? And basically, why does it just seem to be so fun? Well, to me, it was more than fun. It was certainly fun. I had a great time. I was in a fraternity and enjoyed all parts of college life. But for me, the thing when I think about IU, and it's what I tell kids that I talk to who are considering IU among their college choices, it offered any and all opportunities to pursue your interest. And um, I had the—I was fortunate enough, I kind of created my own uh, degree tracks, but I could explore anything and everything from 
any language on the planet, and I use known for its languages, Russian language that happened to be and still is one of the top four or five schools in the country that teaches Russian. But it's like that in almost every language. So if you want any type of liberal arts education, IU is phenomenal. And of course, their business school has been known for decades to be a top-notch business school. It fulfilled all of my interests. I, I, I studied abroad when I was at IU. I worked in D.C. through an internship uh, with then-Senator Coates, and he was senator, just became senator for the first time in 1990. I did a semester there. I could do anything and everything that I wanted to do, and having that almost like a, a buffet of different options in front of me, that's what, for me, was most awesome about IU. And I've, I've always cherished it. I've stayed engaged uh, as an alumnus. I'm on the the now it's called the Hamilton Luger School of uh, the Global School and uh, International School of Studies. And uh, it's phenomenal. It's only five years old, six years old, but it, it has all of the the languages, the the cultural studies, the history studies of uh, the international and diplomacy all under one roof now. And I'm also engaged at the law school, the McKinney Law School on the the uh, Board of Visitors. So I, I just, I, I, it, the law school and the undergrad were just such great education that I, I feel that uh, I want to give back where I can. And that's been a common theme. We've had David Frick on the podcast who went to IU, oh, Jim Morris on the podcast, who obviously is a huge IU booster, uh, Greg right. Ballard is another one, and others. And it just seems to be a singularly phenomenal institution. Um, my degrees are IU degrees, but I went to IPY. When I would go down in graduate school to do research at IU on my thesis, just the difference down in Bloomington as opposed to an urban campus, and this is not a slam at all at IPY, which is leaps and bounds ahead of what it was just when I graduated 20 years ago. But you get down there and you feel like you're actually in a university and oh, you yeah. get in that library and you just get lost. Yeah, It's a lot more than sports. It's a lot more oh, than basketball. Absolutely. I mean, I spent a lot of time in that library. Um, I, I was one of the kids that studied a lot. There were kids who didn't study a lot. I, <laughs> I, I studied a lot. But you know, to your point about the regional campuses, though, I mean, I went to law school at IUPUI, and I had a great experience there. The professional schools are fantastic. And I also took a lot of summer school up at South Bend, IUSB, IU South Bend, because I was doing two degrees. I had to take nine to 12 hours every summer if I wanted to graduate in four years, because I graduated with like 162 credit hours uh, <laughs> to, to get there and to get two degrees. So I have a lot of respect for everything that IU has done on a, around the state and their different campuses. But you're right. There's something special about that's where I spent most of my time. And uh, the, it, to, for me, it's just the diversity of offerings is amazing. One of the most unique things about you is your study in the former Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about choosing Russian as a language. The only Russian I know is from The Hunt for Red October. Okay. So you actually could watch the movie and didn't need the subtitles, right? That's right. That's what right. new Parisky? I think <laughs> that's all I remember. Yeah, you got you got it. And so what was it like being there as opposed to I mean, the United States is is either envied or reviled for its bounty. Mm -hmm. And if you read books about the end of the Cold War and that time period, especially a book I would recommend is by Ken Edelman. And it's called Reagan at Reykjavik. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the summit between Gorbachev and Reagan. Right. And he has a quote in there. It's a phenomenal book. If you love history, especially Cold War history, please pick it up. It's terrific. 
where Gorbachev is trying to negotiate these missiles arms reduction and he looks at Shevard Nazi, who was his foreign minister and kind of snaps at him and says, we can't provide our people with enough toothpaste. Right. How are we going to compete with SDI? Right. So that's a long way of me saying, what the hell was it like over there? Oh, and did yeah. you come back with an even greater appreciation of the United States? So I did, to answer your last question, come back with a huge, a, a different kind of appreciation for the United States. But when I went over there in 1990, it was still the Soviet Union. And it literally looked like, and it really hadn't changed for, you know, 50 years, even in 90. I mean, it, I mean, I, I, that's a little too drastic to say, but not a lot drastic to say. Um, you had no consumerism. Uh, there were, you know, as Americans, we're used to a lot of consumerism. So you walk, you walk down the street at then Soviet Union in 1990, the stores don't say Nike and name your other <laughs> store. They say shoes. They say food. And, you know, it's not a branded restaurant. It says restaurant. So, you know, and it was all black and white. That's how I felt. It was very gray and black and white. And um, and there was lack of any consumer goods at that time. And, uh, of course, Soviet citizens couldn't travel and there was no free freedom of speech, et cetera. But it was literally, I describe it often as like walking on another planet. You felt like you had gone to another planet. So it was incredibly different. But on the other side of it, you had these uh, the, the citizens who were so yearning for information. So they would ask me, I had kids my age that I was interacting with. I was studying Russian language, so I had to get to meet some Russians. And they just they, they wanted to know what was going on in the world. And are the streets really paved with gold in the United States? Um, <laughs> can you really buy dog food at a grocery store? I mean, they actually sell it that way. And there's more than one choice of dog food. I mean, these things were, I mean, this is very strange, right? And so um, and what was it, your reaction to that? I mean, did you just kind of look at him like, you know of what? Course. We, we, well, or did you, you start know, to feel we, sorry we, for We him? talked about, you know, things that were popular for, for kids back then. Who were the rock groups that were popular and, and uh, you know, who, you know, different movies. And I mean, that's what it was pop culture that they were really starving for and trying to get. And they did on the black market sometimes. But it, 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 the, the piece I wanted to mention is that what I gained an appreciation for that as an American, I really hadn't, was the Soviet, the Russians' appreciation for the arts and for the symphony, the ballet, and, and literature. Science. And, and science. And, 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 you know, when, when you don't have consumerism, what can replace it? Well, not for all Soviet citizens, but for a lot of them. I mean, they were very literate, very well-read, and they, they had interest in, you know, Shostakovich, not, uh, you know, um, necessarily all the things that we were interested in. So it gave me a great appreciation, again, kind of to your initial question of learning. I, I, I just I said, wow, I mean, these people are studying, they're learning. And again, they're not getting all the opportunities that we are, but it gave me appreciation that I don't have to have all the you know, the newest this or the newest that to be happy. I can be happy by learning. And that's, that was a big part of my, what, what stuck with me when I came back to the, to the U S I mean, I, 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 like anybody else, I like nice things, but I, I started to really appreciate that, um, you know, life is a lot more than, than consumer products. And that, that was a, a big impact. What was the process like to even be allowed to enter? Um, Is it through the university? So yeah, it's a little all, so, easier. So IU, again, talk about IU. IU has had a program going to the Soviet Union going back to the late 50s, like 58 or six, 1960. So that, that had a long standing program where they take 
Indiana University and some other uh, students from other universities would be allowed to participate and be a group of 15, 20 students studying Russian language in the Soviet Union. So they had it all worked out. But it's still today. I'm going to, to, to Russia in October with another organization I'm involved in called the Liberty Fund. And today it's still very difficult to, I mean, the visa process and the reason it's that way is because it's very difficult for Russians to come this way. They, it's tit for tat. You always remember the tit for tat in every sphere of economics and politics, visa system, no different. It's tit for tat. They do what we do and we do what they do. Is it makes it, it difficult. Do you remember something that you had or something that you said that enthralled the Russians, the Soviets, the most, whether it was a piece of electronics or like, yeah, well, we I'll give do you that an, in the United I'll give States. you an example, not necessarily enthralled, but when I was, I worked for a law firm over there, and uh, this is always interesting, a, kind of a different perspective other than the Americans. So um, I'll move into politics for a second. So you recall the Bill Clinton, uh, Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal, right? Yes, sir. And, uh, and that was a, a big deal in America, right? So I, my assistant, my secretary, my legal secretary at Baker McKinsey came in one day and said, "What, what are you, what are you guys doing with uh, this scandal in America? I mean, <laughs> why, why is this such a big deal?" I said, "Well, it's really, you know, it's a big deal in America for a lot of reasons. But one is, you know, you got the president of the United States not telling the truth, and this and that and the other." And and she said, "Well, you know, if that happened in in to Yeltsin." Uh, Yeltsin was president at the time. That happened to Yeltsin, and, and found out he had an affair. We'd be cheering. We'd be like, wow, he actually has he has that enough energy to be able to <laughs> to sustain something like that. And that uh, was kind so, of the so general it, European but reaction. That was, but to that, that was uh, that was an interesting, you know, kind of reaction to what was big news here was uh, in, in Russia. They they couldn't figure out, you know, what why is this such a huge deal. <laughs> Well, with the different so that was, control that, of the press, it may not have been such a big right, deal. Right, right. Did you get to meet any famous Soviets, famous Russians, whose names perhaps we would know? Uh, I've met some since, uh, not when I was living there per se. I, I, um, I've met a number of people who've served in the administrations over time there. Um, somebody I've always wanted to meet and never had had the chance, I thought I was close to meeting him once, was, was Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev. I would just... You know, coming of age as a high school, college student when Reagan and Gorbachev were, were meeting. And uh, so I had always thought, gosh, it would be awesome to talk to him because, you know, the common uh, thinking or at least what's been written about over the years is that Gorbachev never intended the Soviet Union to collapse. He wanted to make Correct. reforms. Glasnost, perestroika were his famous reforms, which means perestroika means restructuring. Glasnost means openness. And he was trying to make changes and things got away from him and ended up not going exactly the way he thought. And so, but to have a conversation with him, he's still alive today. And uh, hearing about you know what it was like to be in that in that spot with Reagan and and now having myself been to the, to Russia numerous times since the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, for, for to get his reaction and he's been interviewed lots of times but I would love to love to meet him he he's someone I, that I haven't had a chance to talk to I'd love to well I think that's gonna yeah you've already previewed your answer to one of our five questions as okay. we end the podcast later what would you ask him 
If you had a chance to sit down to him, you could speak to him in Russian, I'm assuming, and have a great conversation. And what would you Yo, want to know? <laughs> you want me to say it right now? Um, you know, I would just like to have a beer with him and talk to him about, um, you know, what his intentions exactly were and um, what now, you know, seeing society as it is today with a leader that we that they have in, in Putin um, you know, and, and I was there during a lot of the transition years. The 90s were a period of, of incredible transition. Were you there during the actual takeover or the attempted coup against uh, I was not there at that time. So I was there 90, 94, and 95 through 98. So I just missed it. Uh, I think 91 was really when it occurred. But, um, to, to, you know, to have his vision of he was in the seat making decisions and to see what's transformed since then, the 90s were a great were a decade of great hope. People were there's a lot of euphoria about what could be in Russia and a lot of it hasn't transpired. Some of it has. You can now there's there's freedom of movement and some freedom of speech. You have to be careful if you're a journalist in Russia today. A lot of them have been killed for breaking stories that the authorities sure. didn't want to have broken. And um, but a lot of things have changed for the positive. I mean, people can live a lot different and better lives in many ways. But um, it'd be a great conversation to to have. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, our friend Aaron Shaler with Grandview Lending, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We're here with Nate Feltman, who, as you have heard already, has had a phenomenal career. We've only gotten to about 10% of it, so we're going to move ahead. But I do want to ask you one more question. In late 1989, or maybe it was early 1990, Time Magazine named Mikhail Gorbachev as its man of the decade for the 1980s. Mm -hmm. As someone who's a fan of both the former general secretary and President Ronald Reagan, do you agree with that choice? Well, I'm a much bigger fan of the former president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Gorbachev had a, a, a huge role in peacefully ending the Cold War. It could have gone a lot of different ways, and there's you know there's a lot of material, books and books and hundreds of books, thousands of books written on you know the end of the Cold War, what precipitated the end of the Cold War, and and people can uh, argue about about that, uh, and we don't have time to go into that in detail. But I think Gorbachev played a pivotal role, and he was the right guy at the right time. Reagan even said that uh, a negotiating partner that he could actually. You know, communicate. He famously said that I'd like to negotiate, but they keep on dying on me. That's right. right. Which uh, was only the, funny the, because the Reagan was in his seventies. <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> he played a big role. I think he certainly. Um, uh, you know, again, you can debate whether he meant to do what happened because I don't think he did necessarily. But uh, things got away when he started loosening the reins. How much influence or power came out of? President Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I think that was a huge moment in history. That speech they gave at uh, the, the the wall uh, was, uh, it was heard. I mean, a lot of the, you know, 
of course, Soviet Union tried to keep out a lot of of uh, media reports like that. But that one was heard, and uh, there were lots of ways for Soviet citizens to get uh, information, and uh, that that was a lot. And, and calling the Soviet Union the evil empire was also a big, big deal. And I've heard people talk about it. And so, uh, you know, making a stark comparison of what could be and what was what people were living in, uh, those were very, very important moments in history. Any any good biography or chronicle of the Ronald Reagan or the Reagan years? Well, the most recent Foc- one focus on focuses on the internal argument over Reagan saying, right. "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." Absolutely. There's a great book, re- most recently that I really enjoyed reading. It's by Brett Baer on uh, Reagan's trip to Moscow when he speaks to students at Moscow State University. For those that like uh, that history, it's a, it's a great, it's a really unique one. And I think he talks about before that trip uh, or maybe right after that, that, um, that piece. You're right. Let's, you've mentioned uh, pivotal moments and pivotal leaders. Let's fast forward several years. Mm-hmm. In 2004, this fella is cajoled, begged, coerced, convinced to run for governor. Mm-hmm. His name was Mitch Daniels. Did you have any sort of relationship with Mitch before he ran? Did you know him at all? Because you played a very, very big role in his subsequent administration. No, I didn't. And uh, but, I, but the guy who um, helped me uh, be a part of that um, it certainly was Mitch because I had volunteered. I had volunteered when I was a lawyer at Ice Miller. I had volunteered on the campaign, and I, and I heard a lot about Mitch and knew a lot of people who were very close to him, saying what a credible, incredible leader he could be for our state. Um, but uh, Mickey Maurer, who um, I know you've had on this podcast. Mm-hmm. He was the one who really reached out to me and uh, and got me directly involved in coming to work with him in the formation of the IEDC. But but uh, I couldn't have been more excited, you know, in that time period in 2004 when Mitch was elected and, and what was in store for the state of Indiana. You mentioned earlier about uh, in Turner being involved in Senator Coates's mm-hmm. office. Mm-hmm. Did you have a big political background or experiences before uh, 2004? So I uh, had a little bit. So I, I, when I was a kid, I volunteered for uh, Congressman Heiler up in uh, my oh, neck John of the woods, Heiler. John Heiler. And, um, and so it ran in my family. My uncle was Secretary of State of Indiana from 1978 to 1986. His name's Ed Simcox. He's my uncle. And my grandfather, his father, was LaPorte County chairman for years and involved in Republican politics. So every Thanksgiving, Christmas time, around the table, we were talking politics and what was going on <laughs> in the world. So I was exposed at a young age to um, certainly to, to politics and, and, go, and the importance of government and, uh, and, and what, what could be done and, and what should be done. So um, it, was a, it, was a, it was around the family. And then I worked, when I was in law school, I worked for the Secretary of State's office. Sue Ann Gilroy was Secretary of State. And uh, I did a short stint uh, in the corporations division while I was finishing up law school. So I had some exposure uh, there. We asked quite a few questions of Mr. Maurer when it came to the IEDC. And mm-hmm. we, we, necess- we pigeonholed him a little bit as maybe a Democrat. And he kind of corrected us, rightfully right. so, and said he's more of a moderate liberal Republican. And that's where he looks to put his, vo- his votes and his time. But it was certainly portrayed by the news media as 
another example of Mitch Daniels being able to bring people together, much oh, like yeah. the Kernan Shepherd Commission. The IEDC was not in existence until Mitch Daniels created it as governor. Why do you think the IEDC is necessary, was necessary, and what do you think about the work it's done in the last five to ten years? Sure. Well, we have been running economic development in the state in a pretty bureaucratic way. And the idea of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, which was actually started germinating before Mitch was governor, but Mitch is the one that put it into action. And it was to allow the, the, the enterprise, the, this quasi-governmental agency, public, private public agency, to operate more like a private company and, and not be bound by all the rules of government all the time. And so the idea was a very good one, and it's been a, a huge success. And it was like a lot of things Governor Daniels did. He looked around the country, sometimes looked around the world to see what was working and what wasn't working. And, and you looked at some states that had a similar setup. I think Florida was one where Jeb Bush was governor and had set up an, an economic development corporation, and it was working. And so it, you brought in business people that knew how to negotiate deals and knew how to have some judgment, and, and not everything is objective. It should, shouldn't be. It's some objectivity to getting, you know, the best deal for the state of Indiana and in, uh, certain situations. And uh, we went out with like salesmen and deal makers and went out into the world and, and uh, Mitch armed, you know, us to do that. And, uh, and we were successful right away. We, we landed big opportunities with uh, Honda and some of the other Japanese auto manufacturers and started going to places we hadn't been in years, like Japan, uh, where, where um, Democrat governors had decided to, to not spend time. And um, and it was the right time of the, in, in our state's history to, to re-engage. Do you get the sense that these companies and these organizations, as much as they may have found Indiana or Hoosiers or both enticing, that it really was – they were kind of buying into Mitch Daniels? There's no doubt. So I, I would say, you know, when – a company is looking, it doesn't matter if they're an international company or a domestic company, when they're looking for places to make investments, they're looking for predictability. They're looking looking for, you know, uh, an environment that's going to allow them to succeed. And they knew from, from Governor Daniel's agenda and what he was doing from the very day he took office that he was trying to make Indiana a better place to to live, to grow jobs, to, to bring investment. And that was, and everything he did, it was about making Indiana a better place so that there were more opportunities for every person, every Hoosier. And, uh, and that's what they witnessed and that's what they saw. And they, and there was predictability about that. So uh, low taxes are important, but so are a lot of other things. And, and Mitch was working on all of them, you know, as soon as he possibly could. Recently, a really good friend of yours who just happens to be the governor of the state of Indiana announced his intention to seek reelection. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about your views on Eric Holcomb, both as governor and as a person. Yeah. So I was lucky. I got to know our governor uh, way back when, when we were just, when I was volunteering for the, for Mitch's campaign, uh, Eric was uh, a political uh, uh, uh 
hire for the campaign and was doing great work in different constituencies. He was organizing the the hunters and the veterans and every constituent group you could imagine. He was working on it and doing a great job. So I got to know him back then. And then, of course, after Mitch Daniels won, I got to work uh, with him and, and he was in the governor's office working with Mitch. And I was working with Mickey and Pat Miller at the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. Got to know him as just a great human being. I mean, just phenomenal, trustworthy, high integrity, great individual and always a great teammate and that was that was my view of, of of Eric and I think everybody that worked with Eric knew knew him as such since he's become governor I think he's been just what our state needed you know we had some some controversy as you well know uh, certainly in central Indiana with rifra there you know Eric had worked for lots of different people in his history um, starting with Hostetler and then of course with with Mitch and then uh, with Pence as, as chairman and and uh, and lots of lots of different folks. So the question was, what kind of governor is Eric going to be? Is he going to be real inclusive and uh, of everybody and governor for all Hoosiers, or is he going to uh, cause controversy? And nobody nobody knew for sure. But I've I've been very pleased with how effective he has been and um, and being able to bring people together. And I hear it all the time. I, I have Democratic friends who say. He's done a good job. And that when, when you hear that, you know, that means things are going pretty darn well. I've said this on Indiana Week in Review and in other places. A, I, I guess I should say that Governor Holcomb has agreed to come on the Leaders and Legends podcast. So we're incredibly excited about that. Uh, I was in the Army. He was in the Navy. So I hope there's no real fight. Mm-hmm. It's just a play fight. But his travels... He has to be the most traveled governor. And by my traveled, I mean in the state of Indiana. Oh, yeah. All that he's done politically, he was with Daniels in 04. Right. He ran Daniels' campaign in 08. Then he's state party chairman. Mm-hmm. Then he's Senator Dan Coates' state director. Right. Then he's running for the Senate. Then he becomes LG. To me... A, Holcomb is the first MTV governor. And when I say that, I mean that he has a naturally disarming, deflecting way about him. Yeah. Where he's kind of like Greg Ballard. You didn't you wouldn't know what they were doing for a living unless they told you. Right. Because they act so self-effacing and yeah, down to earth. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about why you think Eric specifically is headed for even more success in the governor's office from a personality standpoint. Yeah. Well, I think you hit it on the head already, Robert. I mean, he is um, just a, a guy, a guy's guy, somebody that, you know, you want to hang out with and, and, but just incredibly inclusive. And I think, you know, it's important, you know, we got, we have uh, 6.5 million approximately Hoosiers. And uh, when you're in, 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 in a political role in, in the government, um, you're you're the governor for all 6.5 million Hoosiers, and I think he takes that really seriously. And when I see him reaching out to, you know, the mayor of Gary to to go on a trip, I think he was uh, in Canada uh, doing some job searching, and you know, I mean, that stuff matters. And uh, and and he's just he's that guy. So I I think he um, 
I think he has a lot more opportunity to be more successful. You know, our state has made a lot of progress over the years, but um, you can't rest. And there's a lot more that we need to do. Uh, workforce is one. Public health, I think, is another where we are suffering as a state. And, and it costs, you know, billions and billions a year in uh, lost, you know, health care costs because of uh, being high on the smoking and obesity charts. And, um, and talent is another one where we just need to do more to recruit uh, people back to the state and, and keep people in the state. Um, and I know these are things that he's really focused on. And I think there are some, some, you know, not to pun, the, but there are some major moves going back to the McDaniels <laughs> days. There's some major moves that if he's given a second chance, I think um, to be governor another term, I think he'll, he'll make some major moves. And, and he calls it next level. But I'm used to the major moves still. <laughs> you are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, our friend Aaron Shaler from Grandview Lending, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We're here with Nate Feltman, entrepreneur, uh, Russophile, and defender. Russophile. Thank you very much. Russophile. Is it fair to say, before we move on, that the history of, of... Indiana in the modern sense will be pre-Mitch Daniels and post-Mitch Daniels, that he represents a true watershed in the history of modern Indiana? I would make that argument. I would say that he showed Hoosiers the art of the possible, that um, we shouldn't just uh, think we're just okay and the status quo is okay, that we can reach for the stars and that it's okay to take a risk because, you know, a lot of times Hoosiers are known as not being great risk takers. Well, there are a lot of great Hoosier risk takers. Mickey's written about a lot of them in, in his Mickey book. Mauer, mm-hmm. uh, but um, there are many, and Mitch is one of them. And he took, he went out on a limb on a number of different issues. And, uh, you know, he sometimes uh, got, the, you know, got the, the feedback, not in a positive way sometimes, but he was willing to go out there, and, and, and it's because – he cared, I believe deeply, that he cares truly, still to this day, he's doing it in the role as president of Purdue University, about making Indiana a better place from his very core. And and he happens to have the smarts and the business experience and the political experience to make it happen. That combination of caring and doing it for the right reasons, not looking for the next job, and also having all the experiences and the IQ does not come along very often. So I'd say, to your point, we had a rare opportunity. And, um, you know, uh, I'm on the board of an organization called the Mitch Daniels Leadership Foundation, where we have a fellows class. We just initiated 20 new fellows. And the, one of the main points there is to try to identify the next Mitch Daniels and uh, give them the resources and the network to be able to do that. But those are um, a dime a dozen, so it's not going to be easy. But I think you're right. I think it was a watershed event, but I think it gives us the art of the possible. And so when you are in the administration, or at least tangentially connected to the administration through the IEDC, and you have a front seat yeah. for all these amazing things right. that he's trying to accomplish, that the administration's I trying was, to accomplish. I was in the administration because I was in the cabinet, and so... Mitch always put business and, and economic development as number one, so I always got to sit to the to the right, right directly to the right. So it, I got to see it all in action. And, Fantastic! And when you're trying, you're working your tail off, right? Yeah, fifteen hours, sixteen hours right. a day, weekends, trips. Correct. And you hear 
we won't necessarily name, but but you hear of uh, an antagonistic opposition leader say, well, we've never done it that way before, mm-hmm. which was said. Did that just want to make you pull your hair out and say, yeah, I know. And that's why we're doing it this way now, because we've never done it this way before. And it shows, you know. It it didn't really for me. It didn't it didn't make me want to do that. And I think a lot of people felt that way because, you know, there was something, you know, Mitch could connect with anybody. I mean, he connected with uh you know, he'd go into every county of the state and connect everybody and so there there was there started to be a groundswell of support for change. I mean, you know, there were the difficult, you know, first couple of years. I was uh, at state party going, for those years. Going to uh, a new, you know, daylight saving time. Um, it was one that seemed like outsized, you know, reaction, you know, farmers were concerned about, you know, all sorts of things and, uh, just crazy, you know, but you know, it, these are, these are things that I guess impact people's lives. Right. And so, um, but once Hoosiers got used to the idea, we're going to try some things, they're not all going to work probably, but you won't know until you try. And a lot of them actually worked. And that going back to, you know, Mitch had spent so much time and his team, researching things that worked and and doing things that we believed and and they believed would lead to positive outcomes for all Hoosiers. And so um, I I guess you can't let the naysayers uh, somehow limit your your aggressiveness and limit your opportunities. And I don't think Mitch ever let that happen. And, and the team around him didn't, you know, he had, here's the thing, Mitch had a lot of business people and business people are used to naysayers. They're used to being poo-pooed and they're used to recovering when things go wrong. So when you bring in a lot of risk takers who've, who've done that in business to government, you know, good things can happen. I knew you when I was comms director at the Indiana Republican party and you were at IEDC. Uh-huh. We'd met a few times. But where I really got to know you, and quite frankly, would walk out of meetings going, damn, I wouldn't mind being that guy, Nate Feltman, (laughs) was when I was Deputy Chief of Staff and Communications Director for Mayor Greg Ballard and was doing the messaging for the utility deal between the city and Citizens Energy. You were helping us as a consultant Mm -hmm. on the outside. I was the lawyer uh, for the city. I was trying not to use the word lawyer. Oh, well, I, I, I you know, you unlike it? some people, <laughs> I won't name names, Mitch Daniels, but unlike some people, I admit that I did practice law for quite some time. <laughs> and our podcast with him, uh, which has not yet been aired, I think he said he malpracticed law. That's yeah. a direct quote. No, I'm sure he did a lot better than that. You got to work with another leader. And this leader was a little bit of more of a surprise, to yeah. say the least. Mm-hmm. And that was Greg Ballard. Right. Talk a little bit to the Leaders and Legends podcast audience about your impressions of, of Greg Ballard, the person, and how he performed as mayor. Yeah. Well, I say this often, that I believe Mayor Ballard and Governor Mitch Daniels had a lot in common. And it's one really, really important thing that they had in common that I think is a really important sign of a good leader, which is choosing great people to work for you and then going to let them do their, to let them do their job. Just let them do their job. They're going to make mistakes, but let them do their job. And um, that is, I think, something that sometimes um, leaders of, of governments and state government, city government forget that, um, you know, that's what Mitch did so effectively. He brought in really 
bright and talented people to his administration. Mayor Ballard did the same thing. You look around the city today, it's, got, it's a who's who, you know, the Sports Corp and the Chamber and yourself and lots of others, right, are all doing great things. It's because he found highly talented people to bring to his administration and then let him do, let them do their job. So I would, I would say, um, I mean, I enjoyed very much the opportunity to work with the mayor and the whole team. Um, at that time, Chris Cotterell and Michael Huber and yourself and lots of others on the team, um, to, to, to do what was right for the city, which was transferring the water and wastewater to citizens, take it out of the political realm and put it in the, in, in a, in a, um, a trust um, for the public trust that is a rare thing and a positive thing for for ratepayers. Um, so um, he he's a he kind of as you know he's a what you see is what you get guy, and uh, we needed and I think at that time a nuts and bolts mayor and that's what he was. But he was more than that. He was a guy who knew leadership because he'd served in the in our nation's military. And uh, and he brought those mili- those military leadership skills to bear in a positive way. But that's the one trait that I'd say you know he and Mitch are 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 uh, aligned. Wouldn't you say? I always tell people, especially people who are about to meet Greg Ballard like for the first time or don't know him that well, and I tell them all the same thing: compliment Mayor Ballard's staff, and you're in like Flynn. Mm-hmm. He is so enormously proud of Ryan Vaughn running the Sports Corps, Michael Huber running uh, the Indianapolis, Great Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce, Greg Wilson, who heads the Indiana Civil Rights Commission. The list goes on and on. Jason Dudich, who was mm-hmm. uh, budget director under Governor Holcomb, David Reynolds. Right. We could do this all day. Sure. But another trait they shared, and I won't say that Mayor Ballard learned it from Mitch Daniels, but maybe he observed it while watching the Daniels administration Greg Ballard was never afraid to roll the dice Mm -hmm. that he knew for big changes called for bold decisions absolutely, and big decisions. And that to me is something they had in common. In fact, uh, Greg Ballard in one of his first meetings with Michael Huber, who was uh, a top official in the administration, looked at Michael and said, find me my toll road deal. Mm -hmm. And that became the utility transaction. He did it. Yeah, he found it. Yeah, I agree with you, Robert. He uh, was willing to take a risk, and he's also willing to have a vision. He had a vision of where he wanted the city to go. And and internet, you mentioned uh, Governor Holcomb. I thought you were going to say traveling around the world, not only around the ninety-two counties of the state, but uh, Eric has been around the world. And 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 Mayor Ballard really started. You know, Mitch had already obviously start re- restarted that engine for for our state, but Mayor Ballard took it took it and ran with it as well. Where he was traveling, and you know, great things came out of that. He but he had an international vision for our city. And I think our city desperately needed, and still today we need to figure out, you know, what our next big thing is going to be. But he he was pretty focused on a vision of us being a globally connected, um, you know, city, and and uh, everything from cricket, you'll remember cricket fields to reaching out, which ended up being a huge win more recently. The emphasis to India's right. trips to India, and now we've got a you know two thousand three thousand person campus. Uh, being built on the old airport site. And without Mayor Ballard reaching out, that doesn't happen. It's been my contention that the most underrated aspect of Mayor Ballard's very successful eight years as mayor was all the travel he did while he was an officer in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. I don't know that anyone has traveled as much throughout the world as Greg Ballard did as a private citizen. 
I know Luger was in the military in the Navy as well. Right. But Greg Ballard saw all these things in cities like Strasbourg and Paris and London and Berlin and other places and said, we can, and after he became mayor, I said, we can have this. Right. We can have better connectivity. Absolutely. And as someone who has traveled around the world, Nate, mm-hmm. what do you see in other cities that makes you say, this can come to Indianapolis or this can come to Indiana? What really impresses you? Well, gosh, um, you know, I think Indianapolis has become that city in many ways, but there's more to work on. But, um, I mean, Indianapolis has grown dramatically since I went to law school in the um, early and mid-90s. I mean, it's a different place. And people come and they're absolutely blown away with what Indianapolis has to offer. So I think I think we've made a lot of inroads, uh, for one. Um, it's hard hard for me to answer that question because all cities are so different. You know, you go to Nashville and it's a music scene. You go to Austin, it's all sorts of things. It's gaming and make make Texas Austin weird, and <laughs> uh, and they've done that pretty effectively. So yeah, I kind of referenced, you know, what what's Indiana's next you know generation going to look like? What, what what's the next generation indie? Uh, what's 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 three if you want to call it that? And um, you know, I think I think there are a lot of great ideas that people are are working on, um, and you know, uh, we're working on transportation initiatives and others. But you know, uh, transportation is one, right? I mean, there's a lot of people working on on that piece. But you know, you go to similar sized cities around the country, and you know, you, Denver and and others, and some will debate you know, how effective you know the the rail line transportation has been and they have in in Denver the from the airport to the city a, a easy commute rail line and um i wonder sometimes if we shouldn't be pushing on that you know harder uh, rather than the the bus line and the, the different things we're doing there, but um, you know, I think I think we're I think we're doing okay. I, but I, I I don't have the, all the answers of what what what's going to really move us to the to the next level. We've talked about some politics and elected officials. Nate Feltman ever thought about running for office? I thought about it long ago, and that thought just kind of went <laughs> <laughs> went, went away at some to some degree because. Um, you know, I see I've got a lot of friends, a lot of really good friends who are have run, have served and who are serving now. And um, I see what it does to their family and uh, what kind of commitment it takes. And um, I feel like I can be pretty effective and, and uh, enjoy my I've got a 10 year old and a, and a 12 year old. And uh, I like to coach and spend time with them. And uh, so I haven't. I haven't ever seriously considered it since I've had kids, to be honest. But I, I, I know we need people who are uh, willing, and um, and I, I try to support those that I believe can do an effective job. Do your kids have a choice in their university? Uh, that's a good question. They do actually, probably more than I did. Uh, I had a choice, but I just I I, I, follow, I was brainwashed early, so. Um, you can picture your kids. My kids, black are, my, my kids are already saying IU. They're going to go to IU, but um, when they get a little older, you know, maybe they'll consider some other options. Actually, I'm one of the few Hoosiers who can say, you know, I think Purdue is amazing place, and I've got a lot of friends who went to Purdue. Now, of course, I give them a hard time 
when we're playing them, <laughs> and we have great battles when we're playing on the sports field. But Purdue is such an important institution to our state in so many ways, and to our country and world, obviously, with what uh, they, they they do and have done uh, in engineering and beyond in agriculture. But um, I'm a huge fan of Purdue and have been for quite ever since I've been involved in economic development and seeing what they do to. Uh, produce companies and patents uh and, and and contribute to our state i've always i've been a big fan for for a number of years well my son's about to make the trek up there and he got uh admitted to the aviation school awesome and uh is gonna go up there and i said leave all your iu shirts at home leave all your notre dame hats at home i go they won't get the joke yeah Just don't take any chances but he couldn't be more thrilled and to anyone who thinks that leadership doesn't matter, in my view, it's the single most underrated part of any success is individual leadership. Man, woman, it doesn't matter. Mitch Daniels's tenure as president of Purdue is can't probably be quantified right. as to what it has meant for that university. I think that's right. I think that's right. He's uh, changed the conversation around the country, too, and people have taken note. Uh, of course, on the cost of college education and student loan situation, those are being debated on the national level uh, in every way. And uh, Mitch has addressed them and is addressing them in such significant ways and very entrepreneurial entrepreneurial and business-like ways and showing the way of what's possible, which, uh, again, he's always, he's always focused on the art of the possible and he's doing it. So, yeah, I agree with you. Before we get to the five questions, I want to give you a chance to address a, a project of yours that is uh, steeped in erudition and reading and wanting to learn more and share that learning and knowledge uh, with others. Talk about the Liberty Fund. Well, thanks. Uh, the Liberty Fund is a not as well-known institution as some in this state, but has an incredible impact around the world. So the Liberty Fund was founded in 1960. So it's been around a while, but we have a new headquarters just on 31 around the 116th Street exit near Delta Fawcett there. And um, we do work around the world. And that work really is uh, a unique thing. It's it's called conversations. And, and we invite people to attend a conversation. And it's usually 15, 16 people with a discussion leader. And it's all around topics of liberty and individual liberty, individual responsibility, limited government. These are things that um, our founder, his name was Pierre Goodrich, believed were important. And um, we've been doing work since 1960, and our conference program has expanded around the world. So we, we do conferences all over the world, uh, around 100 conferences a year. We publish books, usually out-of-circulation texts from Adam Smith to Hayek to others. And um, we have digital presence. We have websites that uh, law, one's called Law and Liberty, Econ Lib, Adam Smith, um, online Library of Liberty. All the all these are resources that a lot of times people aren't aware of. They're right here in Central Indiana. Uh, so it's it's a for me it's a labor of love, and it's, it's to your earlier point, it's continuing education, my own education, which is what our founder uh, wanted. And uh, so it's a great opportunity to. Um, kind of scratch that political itch as well. I don't have to run for office. I can be engaged with engaging people around the world who are in, in, involved and engaged in, in freedom issues uh, with institutions all over the world and uh, making a difference by having one conversation after another. And a lot of times those conversations lead to action and action hopefully leads to positive results. Less socialism, more free enterprise. That's the hope. 
And I would imagine your time overseas, especially in the old Soviet Union, just reinforced. Absolutely. That's what that's what's so wonderful that my my experiences and interests congealed with opportunities right here in Indiana, and that that one I count as a, a real blessing because uh, I'm able, like I said, to travel the world to meet people who are doing phenomenal things, learn from them, and hopefully bring some of those things back to Indiana. We've reached the five questions <clears throat> portion of the Leaders and Legends podcast. No one has failed this quiz yet, okay. Nate, so... I hopefully won't be the first. <laughs> it was funny because in the podcast with Governor Daniels, we had so much to talk about. Quite frankly, we didn't even get to his time as governor. So I was going to skip the five questions. And he chuckled. He goes, no, I'm ready. He goes, no, I've prepared for these. So he got them in advance as a courtesy. And most nice folks don't. Well, I, it's, it seemed appropriate. <laughs> so are you ready? Ready. First question. What was your first job? First job would have been delivering newspapers uh, in uh, Mishawaka, Indiana. I was a newspaper boy. That, that it's interesting because it's almost an antediluvian enterprise. So many people have said that was their first job. Is that, is that right? Oh, it's got to be um, probably, if not half, a quarter of the people I've It's a I've great asked. first job. It's a huge responsibility. You get those papers early in the morning. And you're about our 30th podcast, roughly. Yeah. And so many of my friends growing up had that as their job, and it it's just great, doesn't exist. It was, a great, it was a great first job. I had a lot of different jobs growing up, but that was the first one. Question number two, what was your first concert? First concert, you'll like this one, <laughs> the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys at Notre Dame, remember I grew up in South Bend, and had to be late 80s. Was Stamos there with them? Probably. And it looked definitely the 80s, but it was the Beach Boys at Notre Dame, the ACC it's called, and I think that song... Kokomo. Way down in Kokomo <laughs> was their hit at the time. So I think that was my first. I've been to some lot better concerts, but that was a big, that was a big hit at the time. Yeah. Now, about when you were at the Soviet Union is when they started allowing Western artists to come that's over. Right. Famously, that's Billy right. Joel went over Billy there, Joel the did. Scorpions. Did yep. you see anybody I actually, over there? So that's funny you asked that. Uh, it would have been, I think it was, I'm trying to remember whether it was 90 or 94. I saw the Rolling Stones. In the old, what, the Olympics that the United States boycotted, and I think that would have been '84. They built, uh, they built a stadium, mm-hmm. and it was Olympic Stadium in St. Petersburg. I saw the Rolling Stones. It was, pre- it was pretty awesome. So that was e- that was so that was either, uh, I think it was '94 when I saw them. Yeah. Number three, if you could recommend one book to someone to read, which book would you recommend? Gosh, that's tough because I, you know, at Liberty Fund, we read a lot of books. So one that I've read more recently, but I, I can't say I've read all of it, but I'm trying to learn to read it better, is Adam Smith's Theory of, of Moral Sentiments. It goes by TMS for short. And um, that one has a lot of things about humanity. So Wealth of Nations was about economics. Theory of Moral Sentiments is about human beings. And I recently listened to a talk. This is a great recommendation. I don't know if it's great, but listeners can decide whether it's a great recommendation. <laughs> uh, Russ Roberts gives a weekly podcast at a Liberty Fund website um, called um, EconLib. It's the website, econlib.org, I believe. And Russ Roberts has written a book recently. I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it's about 
Adam Smith and how it, uh, his theory of, of moral sentiments and how it applies to today, today, everyday living. And it talks about, you know, being a good person, uh, I mean, being loved or being lovely. And, and a lot of interesting things that you can get out of reading the, Adam Smith's uh, the theory of moral sentiments. So that, that's one that I would, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still a student. I need to, I need to read all of it, but it, it's, it's sometimes, you know, slow slogging through. It can be. Yeah. Those older, right. exactly right. If you could, question number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, mm-hmm. which event would you choose? Uh, so many good ones. Um, I think I'd go back to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. I got to go to Independence Hall um, a few years ago. Actually, I got to go when IU was in the, I don't know, Sweet 16, or I think it was, I can't remember who they were playing, but it was, it was five or six years ago, and they played in Philadelphia. So I went to that game and went to Independence Hall, and it was really cool. And I just imagining what it would have been like to be there. And I, I visited Ben Franklin's grave, just meeting guys like that and being there. Gosh, you know, this is when being decided what kind of country are we going to have? What kind of republic are we going to have? What, you know, the three equal branches of, of government are being decided. So that, that would have been my choice. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world living today, two hours, talk about anything, whom would you choose? Can I have two, two people or just I have to limit it to one? I'm going to go with, <laughs> I already mentioned one that you questioned me about Mikhail Gorbachev. That'd be, Probably number one, close second would be George Lucas, the founder of Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and getting a chance just to talk to him about his his imagination on mythology and and uh, I'm I'm a I, I like to read about mythology and and what he's what he created with Star Wars. I think is pretty amazing, and it's obviously talk about popular culture. We started. We talked talked about the evil empire. You said Star Wars SDI earlier. <laughs> I mean, it all kind of puts all my interests together. So those maybe I get the three of us together for a great conversation. We can allow that at Leaders and Legends. Okay, just invite us. All right, <laughs> we'd love to have. I try to pull Gorbachev and Lucas on the podcast for sure. I'm going to try to pull that together. I remember showing my son Star Wars for the first time. He was probably five or six, and I said, you know, because. We were trapped in the world of dragon tails and Caillou and all that yeah. abomination. And I just said, Andrew, I want you to watch this movie. It changed the world of entertainment. Absolutely. There was nothing like it before, and there's really kind of been nothing like it since. Right. And like all good young people, he got completely and totally hooked. Yeah. Thank you, Nate, so much for your time. You have done so many things. You have contributed so much to the success, not only of our city, but our state. You have done terrific work for charities. You have always been extremely kind to me. I can't thank you enough for your friendship and for appearing on Leaders and Legends. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Robert. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran Strategies.